It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Stuart Varney. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, August 7th, 2023, on Mike Emanuel. House Republicans continue with their oversight of Biden family business dealings, with one GOP leader drawing this assessment. The Biden family's influence peddling schemes just keep getting bigger, and the corruption is about as bad as we've ever seen. Congressman Tom Emmer is the House Majority Whip. I'm Chris Foster. There's an emergency at some emergency call centers. The mandatory overtime that people have to take because of the shortage of staff and, frankly, the wages that are paid uh, creates huge problems for maintaining an adequately staffed 911 center. And I'm Ian Pryor. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. An important aspect of the 2024 campaign will be how Americans feel about the state of the American economy. Experts say inflation has cooled from its high point, but do consumers feel it? Vice President Kamala Harris is selling the administration's economic policies. We are very proud of Bidenomics. And as today's jobs numbers make clear, Bidenomics is working. Meanwhile, on the campaign trail, many Republicans, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, say Washington must do better for the American people. The reality is, if you've seen over these many years, American families have been saddled with weak economic growth, uh, high prices, their quality of life has stagnated. Republicans are also digging into the Biden family business dealings after former Hunter Biden business associate Devin Archer testified before lawmakers. Chairman of the House Oversight Panel James Comer summed up why this testimony has a significant impact. Their business was influence peddling, and that's what Devin Archer testified in the in the transcribed interview. They were simply selling the brand, which was Joe Biden. This is what Devin Archer said. Uh, they got paid because people needed access to the federal government, and they knew that uh, Hunter Biden was Joe Biden's son. No surprise, Massachusetts Democrat Congressman Jake Auchincloss on Fox News Sunday offered a different perspective. What we saw from the Archer testimony was a very unflattering portrait of Hunter Biden's judgment and business dealings, but no material involvement from Joe Biden himself. Again, no material involvement from Joe Biden himself. It is smoke, it is smoke, it is smoke that the Republicans are, are trying to gin up and yet no fire. While that fight is likely to continue for millions of Americans, their main point of emphasis is likely the economy and its impact on their daily lives. If it weren't so sad, Mike, it would be laughable. Congressman Tom Emmer is the House Majority Whip. The president's Bidenomics spin is clearly not resonating with Main Street America. Uh, and it's not resonating, Mike, because it's not true. Literally, by destroying our energy independence uh, on his first day in office, and then by spending trillions of dollars, this president and his administration have driven inflation that we haven't seen in 40 years cost of everything is going up. And according to uh, a recent CBS News poll, 65% of Americans said the condition of the economy was bad. Uh, 69% said prices have been going up just in the last few weeks. And 70% 
said that their income from their earnings at work just isn't keeping up with inflation. So mm-hmm. the Biden administration is either uh, lying, outright lying, trying to spin something that's not true, or they're completely ignorant. Either way, it's uh, bad for the American people, and they'll answer for it at the ballot box next year. In some cases, inflation is beginning to recede, but in a lot of cases, the prices haven't come down yet. So is that a lasting memory that voters will take with them to the ballot box next year? Without a doubt. And I mean, we hear this all the time. Inflation is receding. Is it really? Uh, go into your local grocery store if you're, uh, you know, you and your wife are both working trying to support three or four kids. Right. Uh, and, and you tell me that the price of eggs is not dramatically higher than it was before this president took office. The price of milk, uh, the price of uh, meat, uh, proteins, uh, all up. Uh, and the price of gas, this is the one that's most interesting to me, Mike, is the Biden administration wants to tell you the price of gas is going down. Uh, the price of gas across the country is a buck fifty at least more than it was when this president took office, and uh, heating fuel is is even worse. So and no, it's uh, it's going to stick with the American people. The American people are smarter than this president and his administration, uh, I believe. A new CNN poll reveals that 54 percent of respondents say they trust Republicans in Congress to handle the major issues facing our country, as opposed to only 45 percent who trust the president. As the House Majority Whip, how does this make you feel that the majority of Americans seem to be putting their trust in the GOP's hands? And do these numbers surprise you in any way? No, actually, they don't. And I I, I just want to uh, qualify a little bit. My understanding of that CNN poll is they asked, who do you trust more, President Biden or the Republican House uh, in Mm -hmm. Congress? Uh, And clearly, the Republican House has been leading. Uh, You've got uh, what we were just talking about, two years of disastrous economic policies, total chaos on our southern border and countless foreign policy blunders. Uh, It's no wonder that Americans have lost faith in this uh, feckless president. Uh, House Republicans, on the other hand, have proven time and time again that we can deliver on a common sense agenda for the American people. In fact, in just the first six months of this Congress, uh, the House Republican uh, uh, majority has affirmed a parent's right to be involved in their child's education, has passed uh, uh, legislation to secure our borders. Uh, has uh, tried to build up American energy production and lower prices for consumers and, uh, frankly, responsibly raised the debt ceiling while achieving historic uh, uh, spending cuts. And the list goes on and on. Both the House and Senate face a challenge when you come back into session in September. Obviously, the end of the fiscal year is at the end of September, which means funding has to be worked out. And you guys are led by Republicans and the Senate's led by Democrats and there's a Democrat in the White House. So what is your message going into September negotiations over government funding? Well, first off, keep in mind, it's that uh, uh, Democrat in the White House and it's the uh, Democrat majority in the Senate that refused to uh, be responsible with the debt ceiling until the Republican led House actually passed a solution Uh, and advance the ball uh, to prevent any uh, default on American debt. When it comes to appropriations, which is what you talked about, Mike, how we pay uh, for the different programs that government provides, the House is supposed to pass 12 appropriations bills out of the House. The Senate has to pass 12, and they have to match up, and then all 12 of those have to go across the president's desk, like you say, on or before midnight on September 30th. 
Mike, the last time that happened was 1994. So people wonder what the frustration has been uh, with uh, this new majority in the House. It's business as usual. We can't have anymore. Congress has to get back to doing its job and taking oversight and control of the budgeting process. We passed uh, one of the 12 before we left. We're going to come back in in, uh, September with only 12 legislative days. Mike, so I expect that we're going to pass some more appropriations bills, but we will not have it all done by September 30th. It's possible it could happen. But if it's not, you'll probably see a short-term continuing resolution that will get us the time that we need before the end of the year to get all these done. Because the big date is January 1st. If we haven't finished all 12 through the House, through the Senate, across the President's desk before uh, the end of the year, on January 1st, according to the historic debt ceiling deal that was done, our government will experience a 1% across-the-board cut, uh, which uh, I, I can guarantee you people in Congress don't want to see that happen. I don't need to tell you your House Republican conference has a lot of different personalities, a lot of different philosophies. Uh, you've got some appropriators who are the, the spending people in Congress. You've got the national security hawks who want to spend more on national security. You've got the people who you know desperately want to fight the debt in this country. So is your message to your individual members that if you stay unified, you have power in this, but if you splinter, then you cede power to the Democrats. Well, they, they already recognize that. I mean, the, uh, the unity, the teamwork that the Republican majority under Kevin McCarthy has shown in the first seven months, we have learned and we're learning that the more we do together, the more that we find the art of the possible, Mike, to listen and respect all these different voices and perspectives within our conference and then try to put together something at the end product that represents all those views, uh, we've been very successful. And I think going forward, uh, that's going to be the same recipe. We don't expect everyone in our conference to agree. We don't even expect uh, that they socialize together. But when we're actually working uh, we got to be a team, and people are trying to advance their agenda. But remember, in order to advance the agenda that you're committed to, uh, you got to have 218 votes. So you got to have the entire Republican team with you to get it done. Obviously, a huge aspect of the role of being lawmakers is oversight. And uh, specifically, the Oversight Committee's been hard at work looking into the Biden family business dealings. We had transcript released of Devin Archer, a former Hunter Biden business partner, who testified that according to uh, Chairman James Comer, quote, Joe Biden was the brand that his son sold around the world to enrich the Biden family. Um your thoughts on these discoveries and the significance they have? Well, first off, it just proves how corrupt the president and his administration and his family, frankly, are. Uh, but getting back to it, you've got this testimony that comes out. Uh, Devin Archer's testimony last week made it clear that Joe Biden lied about his involvement in his family's corrupt business deals. And Right after his testimony, you've got Dan Golden from New York, and uh, you probably have Jamie Raskin, although I didn't see him. Democrats who were on the committee came out and said something that wasn't true, uh, that uh, something completely opposite from the truth. Much like Bidenomics, these Democrats think they can spin facts uh, to match whatever narrative they want. In fact, According to Archer's testimony, then-Vice President Joe Biden joined his son's dinners with foreign business associates, either in person or on a speakerphone, over uh, 20 times. 
Archer also confirmed that then Vice President Biden was, as you said, the brand that his son sold around the world to enrich the Biden family. And the Biden, I guess I'd say the Biden family's influence peddling schemes just keep getting bigger, and the corruption is about as bad as we've ever seen. And I do have uh, full faith in our House investigators, Jim Jordan on the Judiciary Committee and uh, Jamie Comer on the uh, House Oversight Committee to get to the bottom of it, Mike. Of course, House Republicans have been digging in on a variety of other topics. What other investigations currently underway are top of mind for you and your colleagues right now? Well, it's uh, the China committee led by Mike Gallagher out of Wisconsin Mm -hmm. uh, is a very important committee uh, exposing uh, the Chinese acts of aggression, uh, both uh, abroad, but more importantly, right here uh, at home. Uh, things like that. But I, I, I think uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, Mike. We've got to work on these appropriations bills to try and restore uh, Congress to an operating, working Congress. Uh, the people are governed by the actual elected officials as opposed to the bureaucrats. Uh, and then we can do this oversight to try and root out, you know, the problems at the FBI, the problems at the Department of Justice. Uh, all of those are important uh, and they need to be done. He is the House Majority Whip, Tom Emmer, of the great state of Minnesota. Thank you so much for your time and enjoy your time away from the Capitol this August. Thank you, Mike. You're the best. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ian Pryor with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. A Missouri woman says her 911 calls were repeatedly disconnected when her five-year-old son was hit by a fallen tree during storms last month. Emergency services got there 45 minutes later when a friend drove to a police station to ask for help, but the boy died. In Little Rock, Arkansas, there are complaints about long wait times due to staffing shortages. The fire chief in Taze Valley, West Virginia, says budget cuts could delay response times. Kansas City, Missouri Mayor Quentin Lucas says 911 wait times are longer than ever, and he told Fox back in December. The concern isn't just from calls that are coming in now but deterring people from calling 911 when they have an emergency. 82% of call centers in a recent survey report being understaffed, struggling with hiring and retention. 74% report problems with staff burnout. The fact that the 911 centers are understaffed creates more workload for those that remain in the 911 center. Brian Fontes is CEO of the National Emergency Number Association. So therefore, the workload, the types of calls that people receive, the mandatory overtime that people have to take because of the shortage of staff and frankly the wages that are paid uh, creates huge problems for maintaining an adequately staffed 911 center i mean so what's the uh, typical middle of the country starting wage what 18 bucks 20 bucks something like that an hour and it'll vary from city to city to city there is no national compilation of salaries for 911 professionals so all I've been told by a number of those in 911 is that entry-level people will easily go to a big box store or to a fast food service in order to make more money. And that kind of scares you. And some of these uh, fast food centers and others are offering $15, $20 an hour. So, you know, this is the state of 911. And you're not working overnights and you're not having the stress of maybe trying to, you know, you may end up 
yeah. making a deadly mistake. My mom works 24 seven 52. So it's birthdays, it's holidays, it's family events, it's this, that, and the other that you're unable to attend because you're working. And that adds stress, not only to the job itself, but just to your own personal life for not being able to be at those events that are meaningful to a family. And to overcome that, you can't probably just throw a couple dollars at it. I mean, is this going to take significant tax expenditures to get the pay high enough to overcome those work-life balance problems and the stress of it and everything else? I think there's a, a couple of things that could easily be done. One, certainly, I think every community needs to evaluate what they are, in fact, paying their 911 professionals. But this may come as a surprise to you that 911 professionals, according to the federal government, are classified as secretarial and clerical instead of public safety or protected services. And what that means is that oftentimes these 911 professionals are not even eligible for the same benefits that police, fire, EMS would have. That could be anywhere from employee-assisted programs to employee compensation to a number of things that would make the job financially viable and also appealing. So I think every community needs to go back and take a look at this. The federal government, there's legislation to try to get 911 reclassified as a protective service on par with police, fire, and EMS. They are the first responders. And the 911 professionals today, we think of telemedicine in the medical field, 911 responders are the first responders in triage for any type of emergency that they receive in that 911 call coming into the center. They are pushing and pulling data that will better enable field responders to respond to the emergency. They're collecting information from the caller. So it's far more than clerical and secretarial work What's up with 911 technology? It is it outdated in a lot of centers? I mean, we now can, you know, speak by video, speak by any number of of kinds of technologies. You can text. Are 911 centers able to to do that? And also, secondarily, what's how hard is it to pinpoint location if it's on a landline? In today's world, there's a lot of advances that handset manufacturers, the platforms that these wireless devices ride have enabled to improve location accuracy. But the technology, to your fundamental point, in the world that we live in today, most minutes of use on wireless devices is not voice anymore, it's data. And same in almost every other industry uh, we have in our country, the amount of data rather than voice is staggering. But in 911, we're a voice-centric world. We're last century technology. Now, granted, in an emergency, you probably want to talk to someone. But if you had additional information that you could push to that 911 uh, professional that could help better identify your location or could help benefit the uh, professional in understanding the environment that you're calling in, that type of information would would be invaluable to field responders. How many 911 calls are non-emergencies? Is that number as far as you know, kind of steady or, you know, little kids saying that they got the wrong toy in their Happy Meal or somebody, you know, who's lonely or, or is that more of a problem and how much of a, of a burden is it? Again, that's usually compiled on a state by state basis, but realistically, it's probably in the neighborhood of a third of the 911 calls are considered non-emergency. For an example, though, there are some cities that will have 911 centers answer 311 calls. Those are clearly non-emergency calls. 
three on one in some place for people who don't have that around. It's just it's basically just for for information, right? Like street closures or whatever. There's still a lot of of what I'd call non-emergency calls coming into 911 centers, but still those calls are being answered and need to be answered because they're dialing 911. There's also the situation where a caller may call and then hang up. And in that situation, the 911 center and the protocols that public safety have typically at the city, state, county level, tribal lands will require a call back. And if there's still no ability to communicate with a person, then the local requirements may require sending police uh, or a fire uh, vehicle to respond or personnel to respond to that. Now, there's one thing, though, on the technology side that I am hopeful for. We are in a world of moving toward next generation 911. This is all IP enabled 911 systems. Canada has deployed and is in the process of deploying next generation 911 nationwide. In Congress, there is legislation that would help fund the transition to next generation 911 nationwide so that everyone in the country would have this ability to access a next generation 911 center. And I think that's very important because then you'll be able to push and pull data just as you do among your friends and family to those in the 911 centers themselves who are more than willing and capable of receiving uh, information-rich 911 calls, but technology limits it. Back to your point about classifying 911 dispatchers as um, as first responders, emergency workers, besides stuff like pay scales and pensions, but there's a point of pride there where exactly. if, if, if they call you that, then you can think of yourself as that. And, you know, maybe you, you can take a little more pride in that job. The overwhelming number of 911 professionals responding to the survey indicated that they are happy and they love their job. It's just job induces a lot of stress dealing with antiquated technology and you're classified as a secretary or clerical worker when in reality you're a lifesaver dealing with medical emergency protocols. You're the first triage. You are the first first responder. Who generally runs dispatch centers? Is it is I assume, you know, if it's if it's a big city, they can do it themselves. Do smaller towns, is it a county thing or do people band together to um, to staff it? And this this too varies across the country. I live in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Washington, D.C. has a standalone 911 center. Other major cities are starting to do that or have already achieved it. But most times it is an individual center and it's usually housed either within the sheriff's department, fire department or police department. Uh, there are some standalone emergency medical call centers that will have calls transferred to them from the 911 professionals that will then dispatch uh, medical personnel. So all of this is done again at the very local level and it's usually housed within that protective service category police fire ems and i include in police sheriffs so um that's typically where 911 is housed how's the training do people feel like they're okay with it i mean again there's if, if you make a mistake on your first day at a big box store or you screw up somebody's fast food order it's not that big of a deal but if you screw up here it can be a big deal Absolutely, it can be a big deal. Uh, training, again, varies from city to city, state to state, tribal tribal territory. And some, not all states, have minimum threshold requirements for training 911 professionals. Other states 
uh, are not there yet. But training is clearly part of the overall better service to the public. So much so that in the legislation that's talking about next generation 911 technology and hopefully getting that funded and deployed, there's actually funding in there to ensure training takes place to enable a better understanding of new technology and a better service to the public. Training is essential, but it's inconsistent from one community to the next. Yeah. Um, and just finally, how's the, what's the status of any of the legislation? In the, in the last Congress, it almost made it. The funding for the next generation 911 portion of the bill would have been funded by Federal Communications Commission auction revenues. And uh, the very last minute that was pulled out of uh, legislative uh, agenda on the Senate side and therefore didn't make it in the last Congress. In this Congress, unanimously it was voted out of the House Commerce Committee. It then goes to the House floor for a vote. And I would expect that to occur after the August recess. Then it will go over to the Senate. And in the past, if the last Congress is a precursor to what will take place here, if you will, uh, they will probably address the FCC's auction authority and include this funding legislation in that package. But then again, you know, who knows? It, it's just a very interesting legislative process. And uh, But we are hopeful that we will finally, as a nation, uh, get the funding needed to move us into the 21st century. Uh, we deserve, as citizens, to make sure that our citizens have the best 911 service available to the world. Brian Fontes, CEO at uh, the National Emergency Number Association. Brian, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, President Biden will host members of the Houston Astros at the White House, celebrating the team's 2022 World Series championship. Later Monday, President Biden departs the nation's capital to begin a three-state swing to discuss his administration's economic efforts on the anniversary of the enactment of the Inflation Reduction Act. The president will be traveling to Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Tuesday, former President Trump has scheduled a campaign event. Trump is set to speak at an event held at a high school in Wyndham, Massachusetts. Wednesday, Nagasaki, Japan, commemorates the 1945 bombing of the atomic bomb by the U.S. It came three days after a bomb was dropped in Hiroshima and led to Japan's surrender in World War II. Thursday will be the first window for Virgin Galactic to launch its second commercial flight to the edge of space. Saturday, an enshrinement ceremony is set for the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Ian Pryor. What's on your mind? In 2021, Governor Ralph Northam's Department of Education released its model policies for the treatment of transgender students in Virginia's public schools, which, according to state law, required local school districts to adopt policies 
consistent with the state models. The 2021 model policies required students and teachers to refer to other students by their chosen pronouns. It also required schools to allow, quote, gender expansive, non-binary, and gender non-conforming, end quote, students to use restrooms and locker rooms that did not match their biological sex. And while the model policies did not explicitly allow schools to keep information about a student's quote unquote gender identity secret from his or her parents, school districts in Virginia slipped this disturbing practice into regulations or staff training programs. Last week, Governor Glenn Youngkin's Department of Education released revisions to the model policies. Where Northam's policies ignored common sense and the Constitution to create super rights in students who were quote unquote gender expansive, non-binary and gender non-conforming, the new ones mark a return to Virginia's schools being a place of academics and respect rather than a laboratory for social experiments that endanger the mental and physical well-being of children. Under the new policies, schools may not compel teachers and students to refer to other students in a manner that would violate their First Amendment rights. Additionally, students cannot be required to participate in counseling if the parents object. Finally, students are to use locker rooms and bathrooms that correspond with their biological sex, except to the extent that federal law requires otherwise. Some school districts have implied that they may not comply with these new model policies as Virginia law requires. School board members in Fairfax County have signaled that they will not follow the law, and the superintendents of Alexandria and Arlington have flat out stated they will not implement them. Incoming Loudoun County Superintendent Aaron Spence, however, recently told the media that he would make sure the division aligns with the new set of model policies. Beyond common sense reasons for keeping bathrooms and locker rooms segregated by biological sex, informing parents of mental health issues involving their children, and requiring parental involvement for a student to choose a different identity while at school, school districts in Virginia are risking constitutional lawsuits by failing to adopt these policies. It's well past time for Virginia schools to get out of the business of managing the morals, values, and mental and physical well-being of its students in violation of the Constitution, and time for them to adopt these model policies and focus on preparing students for academic success. If they don't, they'll continue to find themselves in court perhaps even in the Supreme Court. I'm Ian Pryor, author of Parents of the World Unite, Senior Advisor at America First Legal, and Executive Director of Fight for Schools. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for season three of my limited time podcast, Everything Will Be Okay, based on my best-selling book of the same name. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.